Welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I serve as a pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel located in Northwest Ohio. The goal of this podcast is to teach God's truth and how to apply it accurately to one's life so that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed as you contemplate God's word. Greetings, saints and fellow bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. Today, I'm doing something a little bit different than I normally do. I'm actually doing a reactionary podcast, and we are going to be reacting to some of the comments made by Pastor Alistair Begg over the last, uh, say, 10 to 14 days regarding the advice he gave to a grandmother who wanted to know whether she should attend her grandchild's gay wedding, LGBTQ wedding, with wedding obviously being in quotation marks there. And I I don't really like to do reactionary podcasts. It's not my style, and it's not what I want this podcast to be known for. I know that there are a lot of sources out there on the internet, on YouTube, uh, that specialize in gotcha or reactionary comments, and they try to take people's statements out of context and make a big deal out of those things. This this is not that, though. This is me as a pastor speaking really to a, a brother pastor and one to whom I have a great deal of respect. Um, pastor Alistair Begg pastors a church that's about 90, 90 minutes from where I currently live, and I have listened to many of his sermons. I've listened to many of his lectures over the years, and I've been tremendously blessed by his ministry. But what I feel compelled to do today is similar to what Paul felt compelled to do in Galatians chapter 2 when he rebuked Peter for all of a sudden eating with the Gentiles and then not eating with the Gentiles when he was in the company of the Jews. And uh, Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul rightly rebuked Peter for that. And and I'm not going to go so far as to say that this is a rebuke of Pastor Bag. I just would say that this is one brother pastor to another saying, brother, we, we need to be more careful and more discerning in the advice that we give. And I have tried very hard over the last 10 days to read and listen to the comments made by Pastor Begg himself. I listened to the interview um, that he gave where he referenced the, the situation where he encouraged the grandmother to attend the, the wedding. Then I listened to the follow-up sermon that he gave, and I have purposely avoided listening to a bunch of other people commenting on his comments. And I, I did that because when I first heard this, I was a little bit, okay, let me be frank. I was very shocked to hear that that's what he said. And I thought to myself, I, I just don't, I don't know that he's actually compromising in the way that it seems like some people are saying he's compromising. And while I'm saying I didn't read a lot of stuff, you couldn't help but hear a few things, especially if you're listening or tuned into what's going on in the Christian culture. So but I, I purposely didn't do any deep dives or, or a lot of research into what other people said. I really wanted to hear what Alistair had to say for himself, and I appreciated what he had to say. That said, I still disagree with it, and I disagree with his reasonings. 
my chief concern in this particular matter is not that I don't know where Pastor Begg stands on the issue of LGBTQ marriage. He has been very clear, explicitly clear, over the course of the last 10 to 15 years as this issue has gained national prominence about where he personally stands on the Word of God and where the Word of God stands. And he is vehemently against LGBTQ, quote-unquote, marriage. And he says as much in his response sermon. Now, I'm not going to do a reaction to the response sermon. I'm not really going to get into that, but I just wanted to point out that I listened to all of those things so that I could make an accurate judgment of where he is at, and I could accurately assess what he was saying. I don't have a, any doubt in my mind that Pastor Begg is against LGBTQ marriage, LGBTQ civil unions. I do have a problem, though, with the fact that he chose to use that particular situation as an illustration of how to display love towards your enemies. I don't think that's the right illustration to use. So I, I want to be very careful here that I don't think that he's compromising the truth. Did he make a mistake? I do believe he did. And I believe as a pastor that I have made mistakes as well in much the same way when I have given advice. There have been times where I have later reflected upon that, and I thought, that is, that is not the advice that I should have given in that situation. It's not the advice that I wanted to communicate in that particular situation. So for what it's worth, I would hope that um, Pastor Begg would hear me in this particular podcast if he should happen to hear it, and if he should happen to hear it and want to repent of just giving poor advice, then that's really what he just needs to repent from. I don't, I don't believe that he's compromised the gospel in any way, shape, or form. And I think that if you are listening to people who think that he's compromised the gospel or think he's compromised the Word of God, then those people haven't accurately discerned what he is communicating. He's really trying to communicate a way for Christians to answer the question, how do I display love towards those who are my enemies? How do I display love to those who would revile my belief system? How do I display love to those who the majority of Christians might say are unlovely and unlovable? And we don't want to fall into that category of Christians who are just like, we're shunning everybody who doesn't agree exactly like we do. All we're going to do is preach the gospel to them. Well, there are, there's a lot of truth to the fact that when you demonstrate Christian love, the true love of Christ to people who don't deserve it, that makes the message of the gospel all that sweeter. And I think that's what Alistair was trying to communicate, although I think he chose a poor example by which to do so. Now, let's just go back to the beginning question, okay? That's a whole bunch of introductory material to say, to actually get to the question that I want to address, which is, should a Christian attend an LGBTQ, quote, wedding, unquote, all right? This is really the crux of the issue, and this is why many, many people who are conservative, traditional-believing Christians 
have a problem with the advice that was given by Pastor Begg, because it seems as if he is encouraging Christians in general to attend these sorts of weddings. Now, if you listen to his sermon, he says explicitly two or three different times that this was a one-off advice, a one-off piece of advice that he gave to one lady at one moment in time that he deemed right in that moment, and he is not sure that he would give that advice again to anybody else in any other situation. So to be fair to him, he's saying this was a unique situation, and this is the advice that I gave in the very unique situation that I found myself answering the question. Let's try to answer the question a bit broader, though, and then also let's try to say, what is the what is the way that we could possibly show love to those who might be in the LGBTQ community as Christians? I would overwhelmingly agree with Pastor Begg that Christians have done a very poor job of actually expressing Christian love and charity to those who are in the LGBTQ community. It seems as if there's only one of two ways that you interact with these people. You either affirm them and you say that their sin is okay, or you totally shun them and reject them and treat them like their sin is totally different than any other sin that could possibly be committed. Is their sin particularly heinous to God? It certainly seems to be, okay, but it's not worse than every other sin. Um, in the sense that in the sense that every sin no matter how small or how great will condemn you to an eternity in the lake of fire but it does seem that there are degrees of sin that god sometimes separates uh, some sins as being more serious and other sins as being maybe less serious and golly this is really difficult to parse out as a fallible human being like what are the what are the more serious sins or what are the less serious sins? Well, the more serious sins, let's just say this, the more serious sins are the sins which would result in the death penalty if you were to look at the Old Testament law. There are a number of sins that would result in you forfeiting your own life in the Old Testament law. Amongst them would be homosexuality, adultery, being stubbornly rebellious to your parents, and murder. Those are all sins that would result in the death penalty according to the Old Testament law. Now, there are other sins, such as lying, um, stealing, etc., that may not result in the death penalty, but result in some kind of restitution that needs to be made. So while we are saying, like, yes, every sin can condemn you to hell— we also have to acknowledge that even in God's law, there are stricter penalties for some sins than others because of the significance of that sin. And I think that that boils down really to God understanding the heart that is behind those sins. Idolatry, I forgot to mention that uh, idolatry is one of the sins that should also carry with it the death penalty, but that was, that was very rarely practiced out in Old Testament Israel. All right, so that's just a, a little precursor there to say, I, I, do, I do appreciate what he's trying to do here in helping Christians to think through how can we display love to a group of people who think that we absolutely hate them, 
But Christians really have only done one of two things. We've either affirmed their sin or we've totally shunned them. So I, I think he's trying to thread a needle, and I think there's nuance there, and I think that's very good. I think oftentimes in the, our American culture, we don't like to operate in nuance. So let's begin answering the question, should a Christian attend an LGBT quote-unquote wedding? Well, what is, the, what is the definition of marriage according to God? Let's start with that. What is the definition of marriage according to God? If we look in the scriptures, we see in Genesis chapter 2 that God clearly defines what marriage is. All right, so he says uh, this in Genesis 2, 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we can see in the very design of creation that God intended a man and a woman to be joined together. They were to leave the households of their parents. So the the man was to leave his father's household. The woman was to leave her, her father's household. They were to be joined together in this unique union called a one flesh union, which is not only physical, and we often think of it as physical, but it's physical it is emotional, it is spiritual, it, it is all-encompassing, this one flesh union, and that's what God designed from the very beginning for one man and one woman. And you say, oh, Pastor Jonathan, the word marriage isn't there. You're correct. Does it even need to be called marriage to be defined that way? Well, I don't believe so, but if you're concerned, if you're concerned that the word marriage isn't used there, Let's go to Jesus and see how Jesus interprets this particular passage, okay? Here is what the Pharisees were trying to do to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to test him from the law. And here's what they said. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Okay, so Clearly, we're here in the context of marriage. They are assuming that a man has married a woman. And Jesus said this, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. All right, so, so Jesus goes back to that Genesis passage, and he quotes that in his response to them, and he actually increases our understanding. He says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And this is a very interesting perspective because it helps us to understand that Marriage is a covenant before God. Marriage was established by God. God joined them together, and men are not supposed to separate them. So now they're testing him some more, and they say, why did Moses then command them to give her a certificate of divorce and send them away? 
And now Jesus replies, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. So divorce was not supposed to be part of God's original plan. And if I'm going to be real honest and really criticize the Christian community, let's criticize all of the pastors and all of the Christians who would allow for this no-fault divorce to take place in their churches and amongst so-called Christians without bringing any kind of church discipline or any kind of reproof or any kind of correction to it. There is an epidemic in the Christian community of no-fault divorce, and it's like, oh, it's okay. This is, this is Christians imitating the culture, and Jesus says it shouldn't be that way. You say, well, well, Pastor Jonathan, is there any reason at all that Christians could be divorced? Well, let's keep reading and see what Jesus says. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, so, so that would be adultery, and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus is giving one exception clause here, that you are not permitted to divorce except in the case of adultery. Now, I don't, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds of talking about the legitimate reasons for le- divorce versus the illegitimate reasons for divorce. That's not really what this uh, podcast is about. Maybe that'll be a future episode. What I want to point out, though, is that the Pharisees and Jesus both recognize that what God established at the very beginning is called marriage, is known as marriage. In the United States, there are a number of different ways that marriage can be ratified. In some states, you can have common law marriage where two people commit to live together in a monogamous relationship, and after a certain number of years, they, they have what's known as this common law marriage. The point of the matter is, if a man and a woman commit to live together in a one-flesh union and to be monogamous in that one flesh union. They are honoring God's original intent and desire for marriage. That's the bottom line. Okay. And the key part of this is it's a man and a woman. To say that in a lesbian, a gay, a transsexual, or even a bisexual person who continues to practice bisexuality, could join in a marriage partnership with somebody else of the same gender is a redefinition of what God established as marriage. It is a redefinition of it because marriage, according to God, is between one man and one woman. One man, one woman. As soon as you violate those parameters, you have violated God's definition of marriage. So, there can really be no actual LGBTQ marriages. And it's, it's very difficult. This is a very practical problem that Christians run into. It's very difficult to have these discussions with people in our culture today because even I inevitably catch myself saying gay marriage, gay marriage, gay marriage. There's no gay marriage. It's a gay union but it's not a marriage because it's not according to the definition that God established for marriage. 
So if we are saying that marriage is defined according to Jesus in this way, according to God in Genesis chapter 2 in this way, then what does it say if a Christian were to attend an LGBTQ wedding? What does that communicate? Number one, it communicates the compromised definition of marriage. It communicates a cultural definition of marriage that, well, this is just a legal arrangement between two parties rather than a God-ordained and God-established covenant between one man and one woman. So if you, as a Christian, were to attend an LGBTQ wedding or an LGBTQ celebration, wedding celebration ceremony of some sort, you, even if you protest, okay, even if you protest ahead of time and say, I don't agree with this, but I'm going anyways, by your very presence, you are compromising the definition of marriage because you are giving some measure of validity to the events that are taking place. This also communicates your passive agreement to the couple's actions. You're, by your presence, affirming that this is a good and proper thing for the couple to do. And, and why is this, okay? Why is this? Well, one of the very traditional understandings that we have of attending a wedding ceremony is that you are affirming the, the goodness of the two people getting married to be joined together. It used to be very common at weddings for the, the pastor who is officiating the wedding to say, if there is any person here who has any reason why these two should not be married, speak now or forever hold your peace. Now, that doesn't happen in a lot of wedding ceremonies anymore. That used to be a common aspect of wedding ceremonies because when you put two people together, you're not supposed to take them apart. And if you have any objection to them being together, you should speak before you witness their event. So the showing up, the attendance at the event, that is your witness that what is happening is good and that you affirm what is happening. I think this is, a, this is a reason why Christians should not attend these particular events, okay? Finally, if you are a Christian and you choose to um, attend one of these events, it puts you in a difficult situation in the future, okay? What are you going to do for the couple's anniversary? Are you going to acknowledge it in some way, shape, or form? Send them a card? Send them a gift card so they can go out to dinner? Um, what if this LGBTQ couple wants to adopt a child? What if they want to hire a surrogate to have a child for them and then raise that child? Once you go down the road of agreeing or affirming the, the wedding, then it, it becomes increasingly difficult to put boundaries on what you will agree or affirm. I think the key point is understanding that the Christian's attendance at a wedding is an affirmation that they agree with what the couple is doing. Now, I've personally attended weddings where I've been hesitant regarding the couple, not because I thought they were sinning, but because I was just like, I don't, I don't know if these people are right for each other. But, you know, in the grace of God, I know that, hey, sometimes Two people who get married may not be perfectly right for each other, but marriage is 
one of the great sanctifying forces in life that God uses to transform us into the image of Christ. And so maybe it's good that these two people who maybe I don't think from my human perspective are right for each other, maybe it's good that they get married. You know, maybe maybe that's a fine thing. Uh, there have been times in my ministry where I have voiced my opinion that you should not marry this individual or that individual. And if the individuals choose to get married anyways, then I say, well, I believe that you have the freedom to get married, but I, I don't agree with your choice. And you just have to, you, you have to communicate those things ahead of time and then be at peace with uh, what the couple decides to do. Now, this is obviously going to lead some of you to think, well, what kinds of weddings could I or could I not attend? Like, Pastor Jonathan, if you don't think that, you know, a couple should get married or, or you have hesitations about that, why would you attend their wedding? And that's a, that's a great question, okay? That's a great question. See, I think if we're looking at the biblical definition of like, what kind of marriages could I attend or what kind of marriages could I not attend, now we're really starting to look at some great practical application. So we're, we're broadening the question now. What kind of marriages could I attend? Well, let me say this. I could attend the marriage of two professing Christians. I may not agree that they're right for each other. It may seem like maybe your personalities don't quite mesh. Um, but, you know, what do I know? I, I only know so much about their relationship. But if there are two professing Christians who want to get married and their lives seem to have a testimony of faithfulness to the Word of God, in other words, they're bearing fruit in their lives and they're committed to one another and they want to be married and they want to make this covenant before God, even if I disagree that they may not be right for each other, I will attend that wedding. I will attend that wedding because I believe that marriage is good. And like I said, marriage is a sanctifying force. And if I've communicated to them my hesitations and they understand that and they still choose to go forward, that's between them and the Lord. But I'll attend that wedding. Now, there's a lot of weddings that I attend where I absolutely affirm the, the goodness of the two people getting married. There are a lot of weddings. But I'm just trying to give you all the nuance here. Like These are all the nuanced things that you have to think about. And I know it's hard in our culture to think in a nuanced way. Now, that being said, here's the next bit of nuance. I will absolutely attend and I will absolutely marry any two non-Christians, a man and a woman, who want to be married together. So if, if two non-Christians come to me and they say, we want to be married, we want to start a family, um, we, we want you to do our wedding, I, I'm all in. Let me do that. I will absolutely do that for you. Why? Why? Because in Genesis chapter 2, God didn't say that marriage was only for people who had faith in him. God established marriage as a good for the benefit of society. Marriage, in general, is very good for society. And so when unbelievers want to practice God's design, whether they acknowledge God or not, when unbelievers want to practice God's design, I'm going to support that. I'm going to encourage them in their endeavors. And look, we do this all the time. As Christians, we vote for people who are politicians who are unbelievers, but we, we try to, or we should try to, vote for politicians who are going to take stances that will uphold the law of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 that even the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, who do not have the law of God, instinctively do the law of God because the conscience that God gave them has instructed them concerning what is right and wrong. 
So if it comes to two non-Christians who are getting married and they want me to do their wedding or they want me to attend their wedding, I'm all for that. All right? I'll absolutely do those things. Now, those are the two circumstances in which I will attend a marriage. Marriage of two professing Christians, marriage of two non-Christians. Okay? What will I not attend? Okay? Well, I will not attend a wedding ceremony between somebody who is a Christian and somebody who is a non-Christian. So if you're a believer and you decide that you want to get married to an unbeliever, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to bless that with my attendance. I'm not going to witness that with my attendance. Why not? Because that is against God's command for believers. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 39, Paul says this, okay, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, now Paul is clearly talking about somebody who became a widow, but is a widow who is a Christian. And as a Christian, she is to only marry in the Lord. That means somebody who has the same faith as her, somebody who has the same worldview as her. Paul elaborates on this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and this isn't specifically speaking of marriage. This is speaking of a lot of different relationships, maybe business relationships, worship relationships, but it is certainly applied to marriage as well. When Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God, of the living God. Okay, so this is very clear that there should be no binding together of believers and unbelievers. And again, this goes for business relationships. It goes for church relationships. I mean, obviously there are people who are unbelievers who infiltrate the church or maybe the church partnering with an unbelieving organization, even a nonprofit organization, that kind of partnership shouldn't happen. Certainly in your personal life, you should not be partnering with unbelievers, and there is no greater partnership than the one flesh union. Okay, so if there is a wedding ceremony between a Christian and a non-Christian, I won't attend that. I won't attend because I would be endorsing this Christian's violation of partnering with an unbeliever. And I have said that to people before, and I think if you're in that situation, you should say that to people too, especially to Christians. We need to hold each other accountable. Look, I don't, I don't believe that the person that you are wanting to marry really loves Jesus. They, they don't have a profession of faith. They don't have a testimony of faith. They don't have fruit in their life it would not be good for you to marry this person. In fact, it's a violation of God's command for you to marry this person. Don't go. Don't go. Okay? So I would not attend that kind of a wedding. The other wedding I wouldn't attend, I've already stated. I wouldn't attend an LGBTQ wedding or celebration ceremony. It's not a marriage. It's just not a marriage. And by going, you are actively undermining God's design for marriage. And you, you might say, well, you know, my presence at other events doesn't undermine God's design. Well, 
when you go to shop at Walmart or when you, you know, buy a Starbucks, um, yeah, maybe, maybe you're the, the corporation is receiving some of your money. That's not necessarily an endorsement of that corporation. That's just the, the exchange of goods that has to happen because we live in a sin cursed world. Um, do I like to try to support businesses that I know are Christian businesses? Absolutely. But there's not a moral equivalency between shopping at a Walmart or a Starbucks and attending a wedding. There's not a moral equivalency there because at the wedding, that is a uniquely spiritual event that God established. It is God's definition. And if you go to a quote-unquote wedding that is not in accordance with God's definition, it is undermining God's definition, you are in some way passively, maybe even actively, giving your stamp of approval to that event. Now, I, I'm just speaking this from my own personal perspective. I'm not saying that the position I hold is the position of all of my fellow pastors at the Grace Brethren Chapel. It's not necessarily the position of um, other Christians who are, who are out there who may be communicating regarding these things, but I think this is a very orthodox position. Like, this is not an unorthodox position. Why? Because our responsibility as Christians is to protect the institutions that God has established. It is to uphold them. It is to defend them. The church is to be the pillar and support of the truth, and if the church compromises on these matters, then what good is the church? Okay, what good is the church? I really believe that as Christians, we have an obligation to not attend these kinds of weddings or celebration ceremonies, even if they don't even call it a wedding, even if they call it a civil union. We know what they want to do. We know what they're doing. It's obvious that they're trying to establish a one flesh relationship that is contrary to the design that God has set forth from creation. Now, what about after the wedding is over? Let's just say that you do know somebody who is a Christian who marries a non-Christian. Or in the case of the grandmother that uh, Pastor Begg was counseling, in the case of that grandmother, what happens after the wedding? Well, once the wedding is done, it's done. I think that is the time that you then can display love and compassion towards them. Okay, so once the wedding is over, the wedding is over. If you have not attended the wedding, kudos. That's good. That's a firm commitment to the truth of God, to upholding the truth of God. But once the wedding is done, then you need to figure out a way to display love and compassion towards these individuals. And I think Pastor Begg would agree with that. I mean, that was his main point, is how do Christians display love and compassion towards these individuals? And so how can we do that? How can we show love to people who disagree with our worldview, who disagree with the definitions that we find in Scripture, who are not practicing the truth or living according to the truth? How can we show love and compassion to them? Well, what I would say one way that you can show love for somebody is by inviting them to your house for dinner or taking them out to dinner and paying for their paying for their meal. You can show love to unbelievers by spending that kind of quality time with them. I don't agree with what you did by getting married, but I still care about you as a person and I want to show you that I care about you by having you over to fellowship with me. Okay? And this is, I think, where Christians will, some Christians will protest. Like, well, I don't want to be polluted by 
my relationship with an un- unbeliever. You know, I, we, we need to be pure. We need to be pure. It, it, Paul writes that we're not supposed to associate with immoral people. Well, let's hold on a second. Paul writing not to associate with immoral people is in the context of not associating with a so-called brother, a professing believer who is living in unrepentant sin, okay? So if you have somebody who's living in unrepentant sin as a believer, yeah, don't, don't invite them to dinner. But in the case of the LGBTQ couple, most likely they're, they're not acknowledging Christ. You know, they're not walking according to the commands. They're not trying to walk according to the commands of the Word of God. They're, they're doing what they do from their very nature, which is a, a sin-cursed nature, a nature that is still enslaved to sin. So, so they don't meet that particular qualification. So yeah, have them over to dinner. Take them out to dinner, all right? Perhaps if it's the believer who marries the non-Christian, you know, once, once it's done, it's done. They have to suffer the natural consequences of their action, but that doesn't mean that you don't show kindness to them. You can still show kindness to them, all right? And maybe there's more nuance to that particular topic that, you know, I haven't thought through and, and would be something good to think through in the future. But once the, once the wedding is done, it's done. So spend some time with them. Um, in, in addition to maybe taking them out to dinner or inviting them to your house for dinner, um, you shouldn't cut them off from your life, all right? Don't cut people off from your life. Don't ignore them. Don't give them the cold shoulder. When Jesus says to love your enemies and you will heat burning coals on your head, that, that means that you have to somehow demonstrate great kindness to them. And so even if they have wounded you in a great way, even if they have repudiated your faith, even if they have reviled you or mocked you for not attending their union, then you can still find ways to keep them in your life, to try to make them a part of your life and show compassion to them through your actions. You're going to continue to act friendly towards them. You're going to try to, to the best of your ability, live at peace with them, as Paul writes that we are to do in Romans 12, 18. And finally, if they insult you or mock you because of your faith, you're not going to retaliate or revile them in return. You're going to say, you know what? I I still love you. I care about you as a person, and I'll be here for you. I need to draw lines because my belief in Jesus Christ and his calling to me to obey his truth makes me draw lines. But in drawing these lines, I'm not cutting you out of my life. I'm just saying there are certain things that I, I will and I will not do because I need to have a clear conscience before my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are a great many ways to display love and compassion towards those who are unbelievers, especially towards the LGBTQ community, without attending their wedding celebration. And I think maybe perhaps one of our great weaknesses as Christians is that we, we haven't spoken enough about how to actually communicate our care for the soul of these individuals. My personal impression, and this is just my personal impression, is that many Christians hold up the sin of LGBTQ as the great boogeyman, and that's, 
that's it. Like that's the greatest sin that you can commit. And and once you've done that, you're you're it's irreconcilable. You're done. You're over with. You know, when I encounter people like that, I I just ask them like, hey, if it wasn't for the grace of God, where do you think you would be in your life? Where would you be? I shudder to think where I would be because I know what my great sin temptations are. And I'm thankful that God saved me when he did and that he gave me the grace and the strength to resist temptation because I know what kind of things I would have been drawn to had I been an unbeliever. But as an unbeliever, you are not unredeemable. You are redeemable because Jesus' blood on the cross paid the price for your sins. And if you would repent and confess in him and put your faith and trust in him, he will forgive you of your sins. Now, I, I admit that there's probably a lot more nuanced discussion than what I've already given you that we could get into in this particular podcast. There are other avenues and other um, situations to consider. What I'm trying to do is establish a broader principle, number one, of Christians should not attend these kinds of weddings, and number two, of just pastoral accountability and and love, lovability, Okay. I've never met Pastor Begg, but I love him as a brother in Christ, and I would hope that should he hear something that I preached or proclaimed that was inaccurate, that he would lovingly communicate that to me. And and this has totally been done from my heart in a spirit of love and with a desire to help my fellow brother pastor think through these matters from a different perspective, although it sounds to me like some of his fellow pastors at the church where he serves, um, have already shared these things with him. I serve with five other pastors, and one of the great advantages of that is we can communicate in our meetings things that we are thinking, ideas that we have, and we can correct and provide challenge and sometimes provide reinforcement for the good things that we're thinking and sometimes correction for the the misguided ways that we think. Uh, We're not perfect people, and when we do make mistakes, when we do uh, speak maybe out of turn or hastily or when our ideas aren't communicated well, um, it's good to just humbly apologize and and move forward, knowing that uh, we try to serve one master, Jesus Christ, and we try to serve one another in a way that imitates Christ's service to us. So thank you for your time and attention in this matter. I think this I hope this has been very profitable for you to help you think through these things. And if you have any follow-up questions or comments, hey, just send me an email, leave a comment on the post, and I'll try to respond to you as quickly as I can. God bless you.